Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that short sentence. I've got my Bible open in Proverbs chapter 3. It says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. And I love a segment that we do from time to time called Words of the Wise. And I have that uh, guest today on the show that's going to be coming on. And he, one of the requirements, and I told him, is you need to be a follower of Jesus for at least four decades and be at least 80. Now, apparently he qualifies, so we'll find more about that in just a minute. But for now, welcome to the show, Mr. Bob Stromberg. Oh, thank you, Bill. Thank you. And when I when I read that passage from Proverbs, you know, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. You've been a follower of Jesus since how long? Well, I accepted Christ at a very early age, when I was in fifth grade, so uh, that would be about 90 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just told everyone how old you are, which is fine. But so was it Was it your mom and dad telling you about Jesus, and that's when you came to the decision? Yes. I had a, a very faithful Mother and father, they they both were born in Sweden, although they they weren't uh, they didn't know each other until they got to this country. But my father was uh, uh, nineteen when he came to this country, and uh, uh, I have been back there in Sweden to see where he grew up and all of that, and the church that he went to, and the uh, the memorials for my my uh, grandfather and grandmother there, which uh, whom I never knew, of course. But my father was very faithful, and so was my mother. And uh, we lived on a farm in Pennsylvania all, all during my uh, years growing up. Uh, although we had an awful lot of work on the farm every day, and Sunday was still hard, but we never missed a Sunday of worship in Sunday schools, and so I learned about I learned all about God and Christ in my very early years. So it was just a natural thing for me, uh, except what I had learned from so many different people, but most of all from my parents. Mm-hmm. And Bob, how many uh, brothers and sisters did you have? How many people working on the farm back uh, when you were a boy? <laughs> yes. Well, there were three boys and three girls, uh, and uh, I was in the middle of the group. It was a very hard time because of the 1929 Depression. And so uh, we had a dairy farm, and uh, we all had to pitch in. And my uh, sisters, uh, they did housework with my mom, but they also came out into the fields when necessary and uh, put up hay and so forth. And then uh, I caught that uh, 
understanding of working together and the necessity for everybody to be a, a part of the family in the in every way. And so I started milking cows when I was five years old and uh, never never quit until I got out of high school and, and got away from home at that time. Wow. So tell me about what a day would look like for you. I mean, you're a, you're a boy working on the farm. How many hours would you have to be working on the farm? And then how much time was set aside for the classroom and the studying and the homework and all of that? Yeah, and play. And play, <laughs> yeah. Let's not forget about that. That's important as well. Yeah, that's right. Well, first, it differed from summer to uh, winter and, and during school terms. Uh, in summer, we had approximately the three months that was quite long then at that time because most of the people in the area where we lived were farmers mm-hmm. and uh, so you know we the schools gave the, the farmers a break there so that we uh, could work as a family so my day would start at uh, my dad calling up the steps Okay, Bob, five o'clock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I would groan and and get up and then I'd go out and, and milk cows with my older brother and and my father. And I must tell you that we also had my grandmother living with us for many, many years and uh, she also milked cows uh in the early years with us. <laughs> so we we get the milk out in the morning, get the cans down to where the truck would fill it up, and eventually ended up in a tank car in Philadelphia, which was about 600 miles away. So that's the way my day would start. And then during the summer, then we always had, you know, planting of uh, of the crops mm-hmm. and uh, getting the hay into the barn for for the next uh, winter, and uh, and cutting up corn and bringing it in and getting it into the silo. It was not a big farm. Most of the farms there were pretty small as as they would be compared to the farm farmlands today. So, uh, uh, but at any rate, we uh, did a variety of things during that point, and it was just you know, necessary to work every day because things had to get done. Right. And, uh, Cows had to be milked. There's had no, to be milked. There's no days off, is there? That's correct. They don't take off on Sundays or anything. Right, and, right. Yeah. So, yeah, and we so we had to do that plus the work outside. And uh, as a kid, I remember uh, growing up and uh, thinking, oh, boy, it must I wish I was like some of those other kids that lived downtown, which was five miles away. They would go up to the swimming hole to swim and have a good time during the day. But I felt that I was being um, not punished, of course, but I I understood that uh, I was in a different situation than than those kids. Yeah, plus you're you're a kid, so you want to be playing, and you want to be playing with other kids. So when you hear stories of kids going to the pool – that that must have been a little tough to hear. It was. It was. You you get a, a bit envious of them. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I guess that's the best word I could think of. I envied those people that didn't have to be working as hard as, as I did, and I knew that uh, uh, it was necessary that uh, that I be there. It was just a, a thing that by observation, and I never remember anybody discussing the responsibilities that we had very much. You just knew you grew into it, and that's the way it was. You worked, you got the hay in, you got the corn in, and you got things ready for the next season of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but I do have to tell you that uh, I wouldn't trade that kind of childhood time and growing up, the things I had to learn through it, for, for anything, really, because we did have lots of fun. We found ways to play, and one of the best ones was we had a wonderful stream that went down the uh, border of our town, and there was one place in it where the every year the, the heavy rains in the spring would dig it out a little deeper, and that was the old swimming hole. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that was a that was a place where when there was any chance, we headed for that. We'd get a load of hay in, and be uh, hot and and uh, tired, and what your thoughts were that won't be long. I'll be running down the hill and diving in. Yeah, and then and, pulling the leeches off, right? <laughs> well, no, we didn't have much of that. Oh, good, all. good. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Bob, did you did you have a uh, the high school you went to? Tell me what that was like. Yeah, well, went to a, a high school. I'm I'm sorry. I went to elementary school. I walked to that. It was a two room schoolhouse out in the country. There, uh, the little I call it the village, but it was just a store and a post office uh, in the store, and uh, that was about oh. A half a mile from my home, mm-hmm. and and then another quarter of a mile up the road was uh, the two room schoolhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first three grades in one room, and fourth, fifth, and sixth in the other. So those, those six uh, grades were completed in that little schoolhouse. So then, so we had you know the same teacher each year. And they were they were good teachers. I recognize them as really good teachers. I have an uh, education background, and I look back at those two teachers in those two two uh, rooms as really dedicated good teachers. Mm-hmm. So I uh, would then went from there. We were transported by bus five miles into a little town called Port Allegheny, mm-hmm. about, about 3,000 people in, in uh, Pennsylvania. We called the location the foothills of the Seneca Highlands. Huh. So you didn't <laughs> and, walk uh, uphill both ways? Uh, <laughs> both ways we walked, <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, I'm just asking. We, the pro- problem was we didn't have any shoes, as you know. Uh, of course not. <laughs> But if you yeah, did have okay. shoes, they would have been barbed wire shoes, right? <laughs> yeah, they okay. would have Perfect. All right. All right, yeah. Mr. Stromberg, let me take a little break. We'll come back. I want to hear lots more about your story, and I'm very interested to hear about the woman you met that you fell in love with. And we'll Okay. Be, we'll, Words of the Wise, one of my favorite segments. We'll take a break and be right back.
we would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. Welcome back to the show. It is time for Words of the Wise, and I'm so glad to have Mr. Bob Stromberg as my guest. And uh, Bob, I, I would love for you to tell us about this beautiful woman named Lucille you laid eyes on. Yeah, I'm glad to talk about her. <laughs> I figured. Uh, I, uh, I, I went into the town schools uh, at the in the seventh grade, and <clears throat> and I and I uh, joined the football team. That was a, quite a sacrifice even for my family, because then I wasn't at home as much like uh, at chores time and so forth. But they put up with that. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I loved football at the time. So I was going up every night from one, from a junior high to the senior high school practice place. And uh, uh, Lucille Stromberg, Lucille Nelson, I should say, at the time, she was coming the other way from, high school because she was one year ahead of me uh, and as uh, uh, every day we would meet about halfway and of course I was a pretty shy farmer boy <laughs> yeah and, and she you know she's one of the girls in town that uh, everybody knew and uh, didn't have any trouble she wasn't bashful but <laughs> any, at any rate uh for a while, when we would meet, it was, hi, how are you doing? Good to see you, and so forth. <laughs> and it kept going like that. Mm-hmm. And so I recognized very early that this is the one I want to marry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Say that. I think that probably happened at about 10th grade, and she was in 11th at the time that we just realized that we were made for each other. Mm-hmm. And... and we fell in love, and it was the most wonderful experience. I have to tell you, my family were all Lutheran, and her family was members of the Covenant Church of this little town. And they used to have services at night where there was mostly singing the old Covenant hymns and so forth. Well, she asked me if I would go along because I didn't normally go to church on Sunday night. I said, oh, sure. Well, I fell in love with the hymns, but of course, the main reason I went was so I could be with her. Mm-hmm. And, and and so uh, I loved the, doing that on Sunday nights. It really was uh, helpful to my spiritual development in the songs we sang and the messages that they contained. I was still graduated a year ahead of me, and when I got through with high school, I, I joined the army at that time because I well I wanted to see something besides where I had lived all my life and haven't hadn't traveled very far of mm-hmm. course and so I went into the army and, and served in the U.S. paratroopers for uh, in Japan for 
a little over a year. And then when I came back, uh, in a matter of months, we were married. And uh, I have to say that uh, we were pretty young, 20 and 19. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the people would question, boy, that's pretty young to get married. You know, it's probably not ready yet and so forth. But we we did prove them wrong, Bill, because we lived together 73 years before Lucille died here mm-hmm. two, two years ago. And, uh, you know, it was it was that kind of a marriage and the uh, the uh, love we had for each other and our children that uh, made life so meaningful for for us. Mm-hmm. And you went on to be a high school principal, one of your jobs. Is that yes, correct? I did. That's correct. I did go to a teacher's college first in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania and got my teaching degree. Then I taught for four years, and then I uh, received an offer to work in my hometown back in Little Port Allegheny. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went back there and I taught math and science for uh, about six or seven years, as I recall. And uh, uh, then I was uh, uh, I was given the job of the, being the high school principal at this school. We had about... Uh, we graduated about, uh, oh, let's see, at that time, about 100 children or students in each class. Mm-hmm. And so it was not a real large school as they go today, but it was big enough. <laughs> and we had, a, we had a very good school, and I was happy to be the principal there for uh, about seven years before I was, uh, and in the meantime, while I was, high school principal. I also was attending Penn State University, which was about a two and a half hour drive from where we lived. And uh, I was working on uh, continued degrees, uh, master's and doctorate at Penn State. And uh, then I was uh, uh, I was offered the job of a county superintendency, which consisted of four school districts and uh, I was the administrative head mm-hmm. of four districts, and that in, that eventually expanded to a, another uh, evolution of that system to a, a fourteen county system. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, it's a changed. I didn't have administrative uh, uh, responsibilities over those fourteen districts, but we had a system of. Uh, uh, providing uh, the services and helping the uh, educational services develop mm-hmm. uh, in the in the individual school districts. Nice. And so we were involved in such things as yeah. getting com- computers going and all of that. Sort yeah. Of all right, Bob. I want to get back to the the good stuff. You and Lucille. Um, what what are what is some advice that you can give listeners uh, as to how to have that kind of love and longevity? It's a, a very good question because there are so many variables or so many mm-hmm. different factors that go into that. There is no doubt that our faith 
in Christ and God is uh, one of the main reasons uh, that we had that kind of longevity to our marriage and our raising of of our children. Mm -hmm. You know, that whole worldview (laughs) is just uh, gives you all the things that you need to know to be loving a couple Mm -hmm. and also loving parents. So that's what we try to do, uh, to always obey what Christ has told us. Amen. Uh, We would treat others and each other as as God has treated Mm -hmm. us. And Bob, uh, how many grandkids altogether? (laughs) Well, we had eight, we had three children, uh, two girls and a boy, and uh, then uh, from that we had eight grandchildren, and from the eight grandchildren, we now have thirteen great grandchildren. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, and I have I have a nice picture of each one of those grandchildren up on my wall, and. Uh, it's really special. <laughs> well, I hope we review the names and pictures daily. I boy, I I get joy out of them every day. I bet you do. I bet yeah. you do. Yeah. And your birthday was just last week. Do I have that correct? That's correct. And again, tell people the number. I was ninety-four at that time. Ninety-four. And yeah. And I'm and I'm in I'm in a very good health uh, for that time amount of time. And uh, the only problem I have is uh, I have a little problem with balance. Mm-hmm. I'm strong uh, otherwise, but I do have to use a walker to uh, make sure that I don't fall. Sure, yeah. Anything yeah. to avoid that kind of stuff. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, your your testimony, your life, and the way you've lived it is a absolute inspiration. I have, I have loved uh, knowing you and Lucille and family over the years, so... I'm thrilled that you well, could uh, check this off your bucket list of things you want to do in life is be on my now, show. That is a, that's a good one. That's a good one. I must tell you, I have one other thing on my bucket list that I want to go back to my farm, which is still there. looks just like it did before, except there are no crops on it now. Uh-huh. I'm planning to do that in October. Fantastic. Well, <laughs> well thank you. So- I want, Bill, I want to tell you, that I've appreciated you for so many years since we first met you on the uh, Triple Espresso. Uh, triple Espresso, yeah, yes. yes. <laughs> and uh, then you came and, and visited us here when Lucille was 90 years yeah, old. That was so memorable. I see the, that picture quite often, and I'm just so happy to uh, have known you over the years. Oh, delighted. Thank you so much for being on the show today, and have a great rest of the evening. Thank you very you much. Bet. Yeah, Mr. Bob Stromberg has been my guest. Words of the Wise, one of my favorite segments. We'll take a break and be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. All right, it is time to jump back into studying the Word of God. And in the, James, at one point, decided to write down some of the best teachings and advice and send them to other Jewish believers in Jesus who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. That later became known as the Book of James. And here to talk about that is my friend and Bible teacher, Dr. Greg Heddington. I think we're going to jump right into the second chapter of James. Greg, welcome. Thank you very much. This is our second chapter, looking at the New Testament letter written by James. The title is Grace. Who was James? Well, he was the first leader ever of the Jerusalem church. James was also the half-brother of Jesus. And I say half-brother because they both had the same mother, but the father of Jesus was none other than the creator of all things. And I say father, even though Jesus was also in the beginning along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Now, some people wonder if James, in his letter, puts too much emphasis on how we live rather than having faith in Jesus, as if we could earn our salvation by good works. We know James does not believe that in a critical event in the first century uh, church history that takes place. You can check it out in Acts 15. James throws his support to the Apostle Paul's position and agrees that a person receives salvation not through earning it, but exclusively by having faith in the Lord. And I just need to make that point clear before we look at this letter. Also, before we get into our second week of our study of James, I want to put the first century of the Roman Empire into context for the writing of the New Testament Scripture, because I think it's important to always remember that life 2,000 years ago in Roman society was very different from today. Life was short and cruel, and people were not treated with much value. Now, we believers know from Genesis 1:27 that all people are created in the image of God, but that has not always been the thinking throughout history. Minorities have always been discriminated against through the world, throughout the world, and Jews have been perceived by the majority as outsiders, even back to the very beginning. And every New Testament writer, let's think about it, except one was Jewish. So they are always discriminated against. James was Jewish. In fact, a good Jewish friend of mine told me, that the Jewish experience can be summed up in just nine words. And this is amazing. But this is, what they, this is what she said. They tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. <laughs> well, that's about right, I guess, although somewhat whimsical. But I want to add to that a quotation regarding the world in which the New Testament writers lived with it, within this quotation from Lucius Lactantius. The Romans had remarkable names. He was a Roman academician and Christ follower in the 3rd century, who spent much of his time lobbying the Roman government to have a more charitable attitude toward the disabled, the poor, the forgotten, who seemed to be of no value to the Roman society. His view was unpopular in the Roman society, but Lucius writes this to the Roman government, quote, Give to the poor, give to the blind, the lame, the destitute. If you, if you don't, they will die. Men may have no use for them, but God does. End of quotation. James would have been proud of that statement, and those are the same actions today that the church still embraces as we witness for the Lord to our culture. After all, what does our daily behavior reflect about our faith and the Lord when we say we follow him? That is what this letter of James is all about. Now, James wrote this letter perhaps 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So apart from Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, 
James is considered the second earliest book written in the New Testament, and you might recall that most of the letters in the New Testament precede all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, we've just discussed the cruel world in which the New Testament was written and saw that the life of an individual in the Roman Empire was not worth much. Therefore, what James and the other New Testament authors write down is revolutionary. Our worth to God is of inestimable value, created in the image of God. And God wants us to know him through grace, by faith, in Jesus. After all, we are saved by grace through faith, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And then we walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, because without faith in Christ, it is impossible to please God. That's Hebrews 11, verse 6. Someone has said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but rather faith is obeying in spite of the consequences. Well, that's true, and there are millions of Christ followers who have lived according to God's word, no matter the price, and many throughout the world have had to pay the ultimate price for their faith. So what is faith? Faith is not some kind of feeling that we get to get jacked up like an athlete who drinks a triple espresso or Red Bull before competition. No, faith is confidence that God's word is true, and then we act on that conviction, which brings pleasure to God and joy to us. I mean, it's a wonderful equation. A large survey was recently conducted of Americans, and of the people who clicked off the box that said they were Christian, 52% of them said they believed that good works, not faith in Christ, will one day get them to heaven. Well, it's no wonder that for 2,000 years, people have been asking questions like, what kind of faith saves a person? Is it necessary to do good works in order to be saved? How could a person know if they have enough saving faith? Now, those are all good questions, and James answers those questions by explaining there are three kinds of faith, but only two of them are, two of them are false faith, and only one is saving faith. So we're in chapter 2 of James and if you're taking notes, Roman numeral one, three kinds of faith. In Roman numeral one A, James calls the first kind of false faith, dead faith. James describes a person with dead faith in the first four verses of chapter two as a person who will say pleasant words to someone who needs their help, but they have no intention of helping that person. James uses the example of someone who claims to be a believer and they see someone who's hungry, poorly clothed, and clearly in desperate need. The false believer intellectually understands the situation, yet does nothing to help them, but instead says something to them like, hope you get help, I'll have a nice thought for you, have a good day, and they walk away. James says that someone like that who claims they believe, but ignores the needs of others, has a dead faith, as James says in chapter 2, verse 17, because it's based on knowing but not on doing anything. You know, I have learned that we are all pretty good at rationalizing our sins. We like to give ourselves a break when we mess up, but we're not so easy on others when they mess up. We might say something like, okay, I made a mistake. I wasn't very nice to that person, but it's not like, it's not like I murdered someone. Well, as Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, that which we call sin in others we call experiment when we do them ourselves. Well, that is so true. And there's only one way to know for certain whether someone truly believes what they say that they believe. 
How do we know? How do we know what someone truly believes? Now, friends, we should all have this answer committed to memory. Three words. Watch their feet. Watch what they do. In dating relationships, especially, it's easy to say, I love you, to someone, but their behavior will prove whether or not what they say is true. And when someone says they love the Lord, it's their behavior which will demonstrate if it is just words or if they truly love the Lord and others. For example, as we know, in order to receive a driver's license, one must pass not only a written test regarding rules of the road, but also a skill test on the road. So it's only reasonable that one who passes the written test and says they believe in Jesus must then demonstrate that faith by the way they live their lives on the road, as it were. That is what distinguishes, hopefully, believers from all others. Roman numeral 1b, James calls the second kind of false faith demonic faith. Now, it may surprise some people to know that demons have a kind of faith. What do they believe? We see throughout the Gospels that demons intellectually believe in God and intellectually believe in the deity of Jesus. We see this when we read about demons oppressing people, and when Jesus is about to cast them out of someone, the demons acknowledge that Jesus has power over them. Check out uh, Mark chapter 5, for example. Demons also acknowledge that Jesus can send them into the abyss, which is the final destination of Satan and his angels. You can look up Luke 8, verse 31. And when Jesus delivers numerous people from demons, they cry out, You are the Son of God. And that's Mark 3, verse 11. Well, that kind of faith appears to be real. Why? Because as our author James tells us in 2.19, the demons know there is only one God and they tremble. In other words, they intellectually and emotionally know the truth about God, and so their faith appears to be real. However, even though it appears to be real, they do not put their faith in Jesus, even though they know that their lack of faith will ultimately cost them eternal judgment. Now, that behavior of demons demonstrates that someone can believe the right thing intellectually and feel emotional about it, but still be far from God. So, to review, James has introduced us to two kinds of false faith. First, there's the dead faith in which one claims to be intellectually, they believe, but there's not any good works to follow that claim. The second false faith is demonic faith in which all demons and many people intellectually and emotionally say they believe in Jesus, but there's no changed life, no good works. So, Roman numeral 1c, James calls the third kind of faith true faith. Now, we can also call it dynamic faith. This is when the mind intellectually understands the truth, the heart feels and expresses the emotion, and good works are the result of that truth. Dynamic faith leads to transformation, a changed life, a new behavior that matches the faith they profess. I'll give you an example from my own life regarding my own transformation. Hopefully, I haven't mentioned this before. By the time I got into sixth grade, I was the biggest kid in my school. If you'd asked me if I had faith in Christ, I would say, sure, I think so. My mother says I do. But my behavior did not reflect the teachings of Jesus. I constantly got in trouble at school. I mean, constantly. It was, I would have done well to have gotten credit for being in the principal's office. <laughs> it was nothing that would send me to juvenile detention center, but I, I did selfish knucklehead things, which many kids do, like talking when I shouldn't, acting like the class clown to get attention, 
And I never hit anyone, but since I was the biggest kid in school, when I walked down the hall and someone would get in my way, I just sort of moved them aside. So I was considered to be a bully by the teachers, even though I didn't think I was. I also, you know, uh, I'll never forget my mother tells me years later when she and my father went to parent-teacher meetings, my teacher would say, Mr. Miss Heddington, you seem like such lovely people. Uh, what happened to your son, Greg? Well, here's the point, and I do have a point for mentioning my misspent youth. When I was in the seventh grade, I took a class at my church in order to become a church member and publicly confess my faith. It was called confirmation class. I learned what it meant to truly believe and follow Jesus. It didn't happen all at once, but over time, through the reading of Scripture, the Holy Spirit began to change my heart, and I became much kinder and more empathetic and caring toward others. Now, because we're all human, we all sin, no one's sinless, but I learned that I could sin less and be happier when I yielded myself to the way the Lord wants us to live. And through reading Scripture and my patient parents, the Holy Spirit transformed me into a more loving person. I mean, it's the kind of transformation my parents always prayed that I would have. And in spite of not living a sinless life, which none of us does, I did continue to grow and continue to grow in my love for the Lord. Bill, I want to talk about good works, but this might be a good time for a break. I think it is time for a break. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. We're talking about the second chapter of the book of James. We'll take a very short break and be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Talking to Dr. Greg Heddington today, second chapter of James, faith without good deeds is dead. This always is a challenging passage in the book of James. And uh, Greg, I'm looking forward to having you navigate us through it. Well, Bill, it is. And we're going to talk about how do good works fall into this. But before we get into that, I want to let's talk about this. If you happen to have a family member or a friend who's going down the wrong path, don't give up on them. Do not grow weary in praying for them, because none of us can say the last word. None of us can write the last page of anyone's life. God is the final judge, not us. And the Lord is in the business of saving people, even when there's two outs and two strikes in the bottom of the ninth. I mean, my wife's mother was on her deathbed when she prayed to trust the Lord. It's true. My wife, Carrie, read the word of God to her, her mother, and her mother prayed to receive Jesus just three minutes before she went into a coma from which she did not recover and soon died thereafter. So we have faith that she's now in the loving arms of the Lord. But even though we may not see a change at the end of someone's life, God knows the truth. So what about good works? If you're taking notes, Roman numeral two, what about good works? James says faith that is not evidenced by works is dead. Verse 26 can we be saved by doing enough good works apart from faith? Can we earn salvation? Scripture is clear about this, and the answer is we cannot earn salvation. It cannot be done. Good works without faith does not bring one salvation. 
even though 52% of Americans who claim to be believers think so. But Scripture is clear. When we talk about salvation, that also includes the freedom and the power to live as the Lord wants us to live right now. Salvation by works alone without faith would be like trying to throw a baseball from Minneapolis to Israel. I mean, no one can do it. No one, no matter how strong, how powerful they are, can do it. A major league outfielder may have power to throw it further, but we cannot be saved by simply trying really hard. And works without faith is dead. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace, that's God's grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, and not because of works, lest anyone should boast that they earned it. Okay, then what is James talking about when he uses the example of two very different people being saved when they did good things? Good question. Whoever's asking that question, excellent question. He's talking about Abraham and Rahab. Now, before we answer that, a a recent Pew survey reports that 39% of Americans believe a person who does not believe in God can still go to heaven. Everyone, of course, has their own opinion, and the majority of people also think they are accepted by God through their good works alone. I prefer to believe in what the Word of God has to say about this, especially regarding eternity. I believe in going to the source. So how were people saved in the Old Testament? Most people, when I ask that question, they say, well, by following the law. No. People in the Old Testament were saved the same way that they are saved today, by faith. Let's look at Abraham. Abraham was given a difficult command by God, and James says Abraham, his obedience, proved that he was already saved by faith in God. In fact, James writes in chapter 2, verse 22, that his faith was completed by his works. So when James says Abraham was justified by his works, it means that his belief in God, which he already had, was validated by his sacrificial behavior. But it does not mean he earned his salvation. Critical point. Again, he did not earn his salvation any more than by I use the example of trying to throw a rock from Minneapolis to Israel or by or by taking out the trash every day for your wife or any other attempt at proving that a husband is worthy outside of of what uh, the Lord has made him as a husband. I mean, let's, let's not diminish the importance of taking out the trash. I mean, I had no idea how important that was until I got married. <laughs> not that my wife would love me less if I didn't, but I mean... You know, to be honest, I do it because I want to show my love to her. I say I love her, and then she sees it when I take out the trash. Again, sounds pretty menial. and used to when I was single, but no more. So James selects Rahab as another example of someone who showed genuine faith in God by their deeds in verse 25. Now, they did not have Jesus to believe in. That's true. But Rahab and Abraham both believed in God And that was counted unto them as righteousness, according to Scripture. Now, we might describe Rahab euphemistically as a a woman of ill repute. And she is the opposite type of person from Abraham in every way, except she proves that she has faith in God, as demonstrated by specific good works to accomplish God's plan. You can check it out. In fact, read it later in Joshua chapter 2. 
Rahab demonstrates her faith in God when she hides the two spies of Israel, and she says to the two men, quote, The Lord your God is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. In other words, Rahab speaks of God as the only God, and she proves her belief in God by risking her, her life, by being obedient to doing what God wanted her to do for his kingdom by hiding the spies of Israel. And incredibly, one of the many surprises in Scripture, Rahab is listed in Matthew chapter 1 as part of the family tree of Jesus the Christ. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir when I talk about this idea that we cannot earn our salvation by doing good works, but I also understand it's a difficult concept for some people who really work hard to earn everything they have in life. And I want to give an example about that, but again, I want people to remember, what do we do to make sure to check out someone who says they really believe something? What do we do? Three words. Watch their feet. Watch what they do. That's one thing I want everybody to be able to immediately respond to. Okay, so what about people who have a difficult idea because they work so hard? They have a difficult idea of just accepting God's grace. Well, let me give an example of this. <clears throat> years ago, when I lived in Houston, I led a Bible study for 16 years for a football team then known as the Houston Oilers. One of my friends um, recently told me, well, I guess you weren't very successful in that Bible study with them because that team no longer exists. <laughs> well, uh, that's true. The team name doesn't exist, but um, I don't take all the blame for that. After all, the owners did move that team from Houston to Nashville, and they're now called the Tennessee what? The Tennessee Titans. Well, anyway, one of the players for Houston was really good. He's in the Hall of Fame now. He played for 19 years, made the Pro Bowl 15 times at three different positions, which is pretty remarkable. And he never missed a game due to injury. In fact, he was known as one of the hardest working players by his teammates. He was and is a Christ follower. And one day during his playing days, he came up to me as we were having our little Bible study in the, uh, the, the reviewing room of, of game film right off of the main locker. He said this to me, and I wrote this down because I just thought this was so appropriate for so many people. He said, you know, every day I'm out there on the field and I'm busting it. I mean, I am giving it everything I have to be the best. I know Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but God's grace is something that is not always easy for me to understand. I mean, I naturally want to work hard to prove I'm worthy to God, so I constantly have to remind myself that I'm saved by grace and not by works. And in my better moments, I know it's all about Jesus, what he did on the cross before I was born. Well, after he said that, all I could say was yes, and that's why they call it Amazing Grace. By the way, when he gives his autograph, he also writes Colossians 3.17, which says, Whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wow, what about works? Well, good works reflect the faith that we say we have. So would anybody know we're a follower of Jesus if we didn't say anything by the way we live? Let's look at another question. Roman number three, what about eternal security? In other words, can someone lose their salvation? And many of us have thought about this at some point. Or here's a one-liner. Well, it's really a two-liner in response to that. 
And by the way, if there's anything I teach that you like, just use it. You don't need to give me credit. It's all from the Lord. So here it is. We cannot earn salvation. Therefore, we cannot lose it since we did not earn it. Let me say this again. We cannot earn salvation. Therefore, we cannot lose it since we did not earn it. Salvation is a gift. It's grace. The New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek word for grace is charis. Charis is where we get the word charismatic. It refers to people who are vibrant, full of life. They're winsome people. Charis also means surprise gift. Grace is a surprise. We had no idea that Jesus would do what he did for us. Grace is also doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Grace is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. What did he do for us? Romans 5, 8 says it. God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Bill, so much to say about that, but we're talking about grace. Yeah, I love this. I love this uh, teaching, Greg. It's been a, a wonderful reminder of our gift that we have in Jesus and what a what a gift it is. Oh, my. So thank you for spending time with us today, and I look forward to the next time we get together. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest. We will take a little break, and uh, we will be back in just a minute. If you missed any of this, it's been teaching on James chapter 2. So I always say head over to MyFaithRadio.com. Check out the Afternoons with Bill show page. You will find it there. So we'll be back in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.